killer worship, man. Yes? Yeah, thank you guys. Tech team, thank you guys. Uh, leaders, thank you guys. Kelly and Sean. How about Kelly and Sean? Let's, let's give them a round of applause. They have uh, both been awesome in just making everything run smoothly. And you know how you can thank Kelly. You know what you can do. You know what the key to thanking Kelly is? Returning your key. There you go. But also say thank you to her as well. Um, yeah, it's been uh, just an awesome weekend. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, given of your time to drive out into the middle of nowhere, trusting me enough to get through the farm fields to get here as you were driving here on Friday thinking, where in the world is Pastor PJ taking us? It's already near Fresno and I'm already a little bit skeeved out by that, but then I'm on Farm Road 92 going to Farm Road 88 and I think I just saw a cow propose to another cow. I, I mean, right? And, and yet, you, yet you made it, so thank you. Hey, when we talked yesterday about gymnastics, it was about the individual's pursuit of a goal to make it to the Olympics, right? But once they make the Olympics, then their goal shifts a little bit. Yeah, they're still trying to be the best in their field, their specialty, whatever that happens to be, whether it's the vault or the bars or whatever. But then they also take on a team goal. For instance, Simone Biles is my daughter's favorite gymnast. She even has her own line of leotards, I guess, because Annie wears them, and she thinks she's Simone Biles when she wears them. But Simone Biles is, is phenomenal, right? She's amazing at what she does. In fact, she's at the top of her game. She's better than anyone else at what she does. There are 7 billion people in the world, and Simone Biles can say, I'm better than all of them in this arena. I mean, that's amazing to be able to say that. And yet, if you were to ask Simone Biles, hey, for the upcoming Olympics, what are your goals for the upcoming Olympics? She wouldn't just sit there and tell you, well, I want to win individual gold in this event, this event, and this event, and that's it, period, end of story. That's my, my goal. No, what, what would she say? She would say, I, I want to win individual gold, but really I want us as Team USA Gymnastics to win the team gold. We're all moving in the same direction. And, and Simone Biles would say, look, I've got an undivided devotion to my arena, in my field, in my events. And I'm saying, look, I'm going to give everything that I have to be the best that I can possibly be at the vault or the uneven bars or whatever it may be that she does, the balance beam. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm the best at this because in me pursuing this with undivided devotion, it's going to make me an even better teammate and help the team accomplish the team goal, which is that uh, together we would corporately be the best in the world at this next Olympics. For all those gymnasts, all the hard work of practices and competitions and exercise and discipline pays off when they become part of Team USA. They get to put on the colors. They get to walk in with the flag in the opening ceremonies. They get to be a part of that. They get to work for that. They get to labor for that. That's when their hard work pays off. Well, here's the deal, y'all. Our hard work doesn't pay off, but the hard work of Jesus Christ pays off for you when you are saved and you are made a part of his team. And that team now, here, presently, in this dispensation is the church. And you're made part of this entity, this body, the church, the, the bride of Christ. And just like Simone Biles says, yeah, I, I want to be as, as good as I possibly can be at these events so that it helps my team. 
As believers, we need to have an undivided devotion to Jesus Christ, an undistracted pursuit of Jesus, so that corporately we are a healthy, functioning body of Christ, a team in the church that is going to be as effective as we possibly can be in carrying out the mission of the church that Christ has for us until he returns and calls us home. If you are in Christ, you are on this team. If you are in Christ, you have been put into, placed into the body of Christ. And Christianity is not an individual pursuit, but a team pursuit. Christianity is, is not a, about Jesus saving a person, but Jesus saving a people. And if you have been saved, you are a part of that people. And as you pursue an undistracted devotion to the Lord, we need to understand that that, yes, has an individual component to it as you pursue godliness and holiness and righteousness and love for Jesus. But there's also this team component to it where you are doing that with one another. And together as the church, together as the bride of Christ, we get to pursue Jesus with an undivided devotion. Take your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be in verse 19. In Hebrews 10, 19, the author of the letter says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In this opening section of this passage, the author makes it undeniably clear to us that we should be devoted to one another and devoted to the church because of the gospel. The, the, the gospel is not just an individual thing, but a corporate thing. And let me walk us through and explain why. First off, he says, therefore. And anytime there's a therefore, we need to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. There you go. So it's going to drive us backwards in the text every time. Every time you see a therefore, it's going to drive you backwards in the text because the author's making a conclusion. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. So back up and, and look at verse 11 of chapter 10. It says this, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The author's pointing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the book of Hebrews, one of the goals of the author is he's trying to show us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. Because the, the letter was written to a group of Christians that were tempted because of persecution to say, you know what, we're going to go back to Judaism because at least in, in Judaism we're not going to be persecuted for our faith. And so the, writer, the, the author is writing to them, pleading with them to understand that Jesus is better than all of those things. And so he's reminding them, look, in the Old Testament law, there was a priest who used to offer, yes, then in the Old Testament, it wasn't the, the death of the cow, the death of the goat, the sacrifice of the animal. That didn't cleanse the sinner. The sinner was cleansed by faith in God as the one who could cleanse sins, right? The, the death of the animal was symbolic, reminding them that there had to be a sacrifice for their sins. And the death of the animal was pointing to the death of the ultimate lamb, who was Jesus Christ, yet to come. But that's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham all the way back in the Old Testament. When he said, through one of your descendants, Abraham, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 
Because it was this anticipation of Jesus that the Old Testament sacrificial system, these animals and the slaughtering and even the Passover lamb and everything else, the, the, the animal was powerless to, to cleanse the sinner. We understand that, right? It was a symbol that there needed to be sacrifice for sin, that there needed to be atonement made for our sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the priest could offer those daily over and over and over again. And look, the animal themselves couldn't take away sins. And the priest wasn't powerful to, to take away sins. The only one that was taking away sins then is the same, way who, same one who takes away sins now, and that is God, right? Verse 12, but when Christ, see the contrast there, when Christ, Christ is better, Jesus is better. When, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, not repeated, one a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Why is that significant? Because that symbolizes that he's, he's finished. He's done. The high priest, the priest had to stand and be ready and be continually offering sacrifices. Jesus gives one sacrifice and sits down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. It's an allusion to Psalm 110 there. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying after this, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their, or laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there no longer is an offering for sin. So then he says, therefore, okay? So he's just laid out this great truth about the fact that we have forgiveness, that atonement has been made by Jesus one time and then Jesus sat down. That you don't need continually sacrifices being offered over and over and over and over and over again for you. The sacrifice is done, it's finished. He's seated at the right hand of God, waiting for his return. And the author says, because of that now, because of the glorious reality of the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sins, and now there no longer needs to be these continual sacrifices. Then he says this, he says, therefore, in our text, he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. We need to remember, again, the context is the writer is saying that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system, better than the sacrificial system, better than the temple even. And that's what he says here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So if you remember the temple, you went inside the temple and there was the holy place, right? Which was where the priests were, but then there was the most holy place. And that's what we're talking about right now. The most holy place was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the place where the, the mercy seat, which was the, the space in between the cherubim, cherubim's wings above the Ark of the, the Covenant, where the, the, the glory of God would appear to meet with his people. And the high priest was allowed to go in there how many times a year? Once on the Day of Atonement, right? He was allowed to go in there one time a year. But he had to go in first offering sacrifices for what? For his own sins, right? And he had to do that. And he had to go in and he had to, to be careful in the, the, the Holy of Holies. Because if he went in flippantly or casually or didn't obey the Lord in that, he was going to lose his life in the presence of God. It was a serious thing. But the author here is saying, we have confidence to go into that place. He's saying, what we have in Jesus is so much better than what they had. Why are you tempted to go back to that? 
you can confidently come into the, the Holy of Holies. You know, when you think about that, I mean, it's, it's amazing, and it's, it's lost on us because it's so commonplace for us, but it was such an amazing reality for these early church believers because they had been a part of the temple system. The temple was still there, and they knew what that was like to say, yeah, we can't go into the Holy of Holies, and the author's going, no, we can come before the Holy of Holies now. The gospel has secured this access to God for us. Are we aware of that? And then he says, by this, by what? By the new and living way. This is a brand new thing that Jesus has done for us. It's a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Guys, if the cross didn't happen, there is no access to the Father. If it wasn't for the cross, we sang that song a couple times this weekend, what? The curse would not be broken. If it wasn't for the cross, we can't pray. We can't come before him. We can't draw near with confidence like the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4. We're still separated from our sins. We're still guilty. We're still in our sin if not for the cross. And yet, through his flesh, because he offered himself, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? What happened to the the veil that was separating man from the Holy of Holies? What happened to it? It It's torn. How was it torn, by the way? From top to bottom. Now, this is a massive curtain that no ladder was tall enough to reach the top of. So it's important that it was torn from the top to the bottom because it's not like this was special effects. This was God saying, we're done with this. You have access. The access has been flung open. You can draw near to me now with confidence and surety in your faith. But he continues, he says, and not only that, but we also have this great high priest now over the house of God. In Hebrews 4.14, the writer said, we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us, right? But one who has been tempted in every respect as we are yet what? Yet without sin. So he's saying Jesus is the better high priest because the high priest in Israel, they all had what? They had sin. Jesus is able to sympathize with us and empathize with us Because he's been in our shoes and he's faced temptation and yet he endured it and he was sinless, which which qualifies him to be this perfect high priest for us. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, you know what the author says there? He says, look, we have a high priest and you know what he's doing right now? He says, he ever lives to make intercession for us. That Jesus is continually before the Father pointing to the, the sacrifice, to the atonement. And it's this offering, this continual fragrant offering that goes up before the Father to say their, their sins have been paid for and they are atoned. Not that the Father is some capricious, angry God up there who, when we sin, is like, oh, I'm going to get him. And then Jesus is like, God, 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 it's okay. Remember, I, I, I died. that's not it. No, it's this beautiful picture of, of our Savior there before the Father continually presenting the the beautiful and worthy and valuable sacrifice of his death on the cross before the Father. Such that the Father is in constant awareness and memory and and reminder of the atonement that you and I have been given. So that we don't need to offer anything else because that sacrifice is, is one and done and it lasts for all of eternity. And that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's our great high priest. He's so much better, right? So then what? Well, what does he say in verse 22? Then let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
you can come before the Lord if you are in Christ, confident that you will be accepted because of the sacrifice from Jesus. You can come before the Lord confident that you are clean from an evil conscience because you've been born again, you've been made new. The old is gone, the new is here. The old man has been crucified with Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but now Christ lives in me, right? That I've been washed clean with the water, that you have been cleansed, that you are righteous with the righteousness of Jesus, even as we were talking about a little bit last night during that that Q&A time. You are currently righteous in the eyes of God with the righteousness of Christ. But I want you to pay attention to the pronouns that the author uses here. He's used a few already. And it's not first person singular or second person singular, is it? The author isn't saying, in light of the the sacrifice of Jesus, now, hey, you draw near to Jesus. You go to your personal prayer closet and shut the door and you pray in secret. You live out your Christianity by yourself. You do this. Or you know what? Now because of this, here's what I do. This is my Christianity. I do these things. I, no, what does, he, what does he use? He uses first person plural, doesn't he? All throughout this passage. And in this first section in verse 22 is his climax. In light of everything that Jesus has done for us, let us draw near in full assurance. See, God's goal has always been for us to corporately worship him for this thing called Christianity, not to be an individual siloed thing that you do that you're like, I'm a Christian and here's my Christianity and this is what I do by myself. That's not Christianity. God has said, no, I've saved you and I've placed you into a body of believers so that you can be an encouragement to one another, so that you can support one another, so that you can love one another as you corporately together draw near to me in full assurance of faith. Jesus died for a people, not a person. And if you are in Christ, you are part of that people. And here's the response, y'all. We need to understand that in responding to the gospel, it's not just responding to Jesus, but it's now responding to Jesus in commitment to his bride. Our first point this morning is this. Devote yourself to the church Christ died for. Devote yourself to the church Christ died for. Y'all, undivided devotion to Jesus must involve undivided devotion to his bride. Undivided devotion to Jesus must involve undivided devotion to his bride. Again, in that passage that we just read, notice the corporate language here. Verse 19, therefore, brothers... Included the ladies too in that, right? Brothers and sisters, therefore church, he's saying. Verse 19, since we have confidence. Verse 20, that he opened for us. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 22 again, let our hearts. Verse 22 again, with our bodies. This is not individual but, but corporate. Guys, the the statement, well, I'm part of the universal church and just not part of the local church is a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. You cannot be part of the universal church if you are not part of a local church because the universal church is made manifest through the local church. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not part of a local church. 
It's imperative for us as believers to be part of the local church. And let's take a look at why. A quick survey of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. So to each person, God has given a spiritual gift. And why has he given you that spiritual gift? What's the purpose? It's for the purpose of the common good of the church. Listen, I don't care how well you blog, the universal church is not benefited by you in your spiritual gift. The local church is benefited by you in your spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is what? With, with Christ. That we are many members in the church, but we all make up one body. And we are part of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit, the unity of the many made one. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in each body, each one of them, as he chose. There's an intentionality behind your place in the church. And that's what that last verse in 1218, that's what this is saying. That God has put you in a local body of believers intentionally, sovereignly put you in a church to use the gifts that he has given you because he wants you there in that unique place to bless that unique group of people. And maybe you're wanting to push back and say, but what about verse 13? For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, all were made to drink of one spirit. There's the universal church. So don't tell me I need to be committed to the local church because there's the universal church. How many of the letters in the New Testament were written to the universal church? None. How many were written to local churches? All of them. Well, they were circulated. Right. Amongst who? Local churches. This, this mindset that you don't need to be involved in the local church is born out of a self-centeredness. And that's all it is. This mindset that says, I don't have to commit to a local body. I don't have to serve in the church. I don't have to give to the church. I don't have to be plugged into a church. I can just be a Lone Ranger Christian is simply selfishness. And it's pride. And it flies in the face of what God is doing through the church. Grab your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Picking up in the middle of Paul's argument here of how God, through Jesus Christ, with Jews and Gentiles, broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He says he's made the two groups one now. They both have equal access to the Father. He's brought near you who are far off, right? He's, he's making this argument here. But I want you to, to pay attention to what he's talking about, about how he's building together the unity of the body of Christ. And, and ask yourself what that looks like then for me to say, well, I'm not a part of a local church. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lone ranger Christian. I'm a, I'm a part of the universal church. I'm going to just float over here. And how does this fit with what Paul describes? Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If one of them was like, I'm part of the universal family, I'm not part of the... Amanda and I have 
five kids at home, so we've got seven in our household. If one of them was like, I'm part of the universal family, I'm not part of the local family. So, you know, you guys really kind of annoy me and you get on my nerves and uh, I'll just do my own thing and you guys go ahead and have your six over there. I mean, I'm still going to wear the name Burner because I'm part of the universal Burner family, but I really don't want to be part of the local Burner family. That's idiotic, isn't it? And yet we do it with the church, don't we? Verse 20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure of the church is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, church, are also being built together. Notice the the present tense. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Guys, the, the, the temple is not here anymore, is it? No, so, so who then is the temple? It's the church. The church is the temple. That we are corporately together, the dwelling place of God. But it's about being together. The individual is not the church. The body is the church. Just like if I were to, to use Paul's analogy, take my ear off, as gross as that is, and throw it on the ground. Nobody would look at my ear and go, oh, well, look, there's PJ. Let's say, that's supposed to be attached to PJ. Because that's how odd it is for a Christian to separate himself from the church and say, I don't need the church, I'm I'm fine over here. The individual is not the church, the body is the church. The the people are the church together. God has saved a a people, not a, a person. And he wants your undivided devotion to him in a love and a commitment to his people. Let me put it a different way, guys. If you're a Christian, commitment to the local church is not optional. Or another way, look, if if you're a Christian and you're not committed to a local church, you've misunderstood the gospel. Jesus died for the church. In fact, listen to this, Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28, I believe. I have it. Yeah, there it is. Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders here right before he leaves them for the final time. And he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock with which, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his own blood. What did Jesus purchase on the cross with his blood? The church. And Paul's writing to these pastors in Ephesus here. He's encouraging them. He's speaking, not writing to them, he's speaking to them. And he's telling them, look, you need to be careful. You need to take your job seriously. You need to shepherd this flock well. Because you know what? This flock, look guys, you know what this cost? It cost Jesus his life. Jesus shed his blood to purchase the church for himself. Guys, is your devotion to the church reflective of that? Do you love the church that much? What do we call the church? We call the church the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. One of the ways that you can show me that you care about me, that you love me, is to treat my wife well. On the flip side of that, if you come up to me and you're going to tell me, hey, Pastor PJ, I love you and you're great and you're awesome and everything's good and man, I really enjoy hanging out with you and, and everything else, can't stand your wife. Guess what? You and I have problems. Massive problems. 
And all those things that you just said, all those platitudes about how you love me and you love hanging out with me and everything else, you know what they did? They, they fell on deaf ears. It's emptiness. Because if you love me, you're going to love my wife. Guys, if you love Jesus, you're going to love his bride. And that's why this whole I love Jesus but not religion movement that, that was super popular five, ten years ago and that there's still some vestiges hanging around. I get the sentiment, but I hate the argument. Because what it's done is it's equated religion in the church. And it's led to an entire generation of Lone Ranger Christians that are just hypercritical of the church and sit in judgment over the church instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to be part of the solution rather than somebody who's just going to snipe it from the sidelines. Look, if there's something that you don't like about the church, I get it. I get that the, the church is a bunch of sinners loving sinners. And it's an imperfect place. But it's a place that Jesus died for and shed his blood for. And if you're going to sit back and you're just going to make pot shots and you're going to lob hand grenades at the church and meanwhile you're on the sidelines just chilling by yourself, not committed to it, Jesus is not happy with you, not pleased with you. And for you to say, but Jesus, I love you, we're good, right? He's going to look at you and say, we are not good. We have to be devoted to the church if we are devoted to Jesus. Because here's the thing, y'all, it's more than here duty or obligation. It's more than, than us saying, well, I'm supposed to do this or I have to do this. This is important because this is an extension of our love for Christ. If we love Jesus, we're going to love what Jesus loves. And guess what Jesus loved more than anything else on this earth? He loved his people. He loved the church to the point of dying for us. So to love him is to allow that to overflow into a love for one another. In fact, think about the greatest commandment. When Jesus is approached, hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He says what? He says, love God and love others. If you're not a part of the local church, how are you going to be able to carry that out? Or how about the new commandment? When Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, John 13, that you love one another. And he's talking to the disciples now. He's talking to the, the, the soon-to-be church at this point. He's saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you guys, that you love one another as what? As I have loved you. How are you going to do that if you're not part of a local church? Philippians 2, you know what? Have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You remember right before that, right? He's saying, hey, do nothing from selfishness or empty, empty conceit, right? But instead, what? In humility of mind, count others more important than yourselves. Look out not only to your own interests, church, but also to the interests of other people. Guys, read the, the, the New Testament letters and ask yourself honestly, how can I be obedient to so much of what it's written here if I'm not involved in a local church? Paul's argument then flows into, not Paul, sorry, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. Just use the same Paul. The author's argument here in Hebrews 10, 23 and 24 then continues and he says this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. 
So not only should we corporately be drawing near, but now there's a, a corporate call to say, let us together hold fast to the profession of our hope. To, to hold fast to something is to stick to it. It's to not let go, right? In Luke 8, 15, the word shows up there. It says, Jesus says here, as for that in the good soil, this is the parable of the sower. As for the seed in the good soil, they are those who hear the word and hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. We need to hold fast, he says, the confession of our hope. This is the profession of your faith. This is holding fast to you saying, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. I am a member of Jesus. You remember the, the writing, the, the author is writing to a bunch of people who are tempted to, to leave the profession of their faith. He's saying, look, corporately join together, church, and hold fast. And then he says this, without wavering. This is undivided devotion. Without wavering, without doubting, without being tossed back and forth, without second-guessing things. We need to hold fast, corporately join together and hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? He says, because the one who promised is what? He's faithful. He's faithful, church. The one who promised you that future, the one who promised, hey, look, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to come back. You saw me leave. I'm going to come back in the same way. He's faithful. He's going to be back, church. Hold fast, join together, wait together, be ready together. Luke chapter 12 it's not just you as a lone ranger servant waiting for the master to return. No, it's you've got one another to be there, to, to keep yourselves awake, to encourage each other. And that's where he's going to go shortly. But it's this idea that, that's, yeah, sometimes it gets difficult to do these things, right? He's writing to a group of, of Christians facing persecution for being Christian. And he's saying to them, look, realize that, that you're not fighting this battle by yourself, and so students, and you're, you're out there, y'all are, are up against a difficult culture and society, and it's getting harder and harder to become and, and, and to hold fast to your profession of faith. This is a difficult thing that is, is facing us. But here's the beauty of the church. You have a family to support you and hold you up, and together, corporately, let us hold fast to the profession of our hope. Let us do this together. It's not, hey, good luck, you're a Christian, now go out and face the wolves by yourself. No, it's you've got a church family, you've got the, the body of Christ together. And though, yes, sometimes it's going to be hard, sometimes you're going to be tempted to be distracted in your devotion, but you have a church family that's there to call you back. Sometimes you're going to be tempted to loosen your grip on your profession, but you've got a church family that's there to strengthen your grip. And you have that because you need that, but they have that in you because they need that from you, which is another reason why, guys, you've got to be devoted to the bride of Christ because the bride of Christ needs you. And you need the bride of Christ. That's our second point together this morning. It's this. Realize you need the church, and the church needs you. Realize you need the church, and the church needs you. You guys remember playing tug-of-war, right? It's kind of one of those games that you don't play so much more as an adult. I don't think I've ever gone over to somebody's house and they said, hey, we're going to hang out tonight, have some dinner, drink some coffee, and then we're going to play some tug-of-war in the backyard. It's going to be awesome. That'd be super hilarious, though, if that happened. Maybe next time we invite people over, we'll play tug-of-war in our backyard. But here's the deal with tug-of-war, right? You, you need the, the members of your team to all be doing what? Pulling on the rope holding the rope, holding fast to the rope, and pulling in the same direction. 
And yeah, we all know it, right? In tug of war, sometimes you've got the kid that you look at and you're like, dude, you kind of go in the middle because you're not going to be pulling much of anything. Lewis is waving at me going, that, that was my existence in, in tug of war. And then you've got the, the big kid, right, that's going to anchor you. And you're like, dude, tie this around your waist and just sit down in the back, okay? Like, that's what I need from you right now. And then you've got, like, the muscle-bound kind of athlete that you're like, you be up front and you just dig your heels in and you don't move, right? And then you've got the rest of everybody else that just kind of fills in in the middle. Well, with the church, it's, it's not that way. There's nobody who's not pulling their weight in an equally valuable way. In the church, everybody's needed. Everybody's necessary. Everybody has to take their place on the line, hold fast to the rope, because we are playing tug-of-war against a world and a culture that wants to pull us across the line and into all of its values and into all of its ways of thinking and into all of the compromise that the world wants from the church right now. And the world is going to keep pulling. And church, if we drop off and walk away. You're leaving your brothers and sisters to fight now a a battle that's all the more difficult now because you're not there doing your part. We need you on the rope. We need you pulling with us. We need you doing your part. We need you holding fast. And you need us on the rope pulling with you. And that's this idea. This idea of, of holding fast, man, it gets difficult. And why does... It's not as though that's a shock to the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, look, I know this is hard. So what does he say in verse 24? He says this, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. As you're tempted to drift, you need a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you and stir you up to get you back in the game and to strengthen your grip back on the rope. You need that. I need that. We need that together. And it's going to happen at different seasons in our life. But at some point in time, All of us need that brother or sister to come alongside us and to stir us up to love and good works. Every one of us, consider. Notice the intentionality there. The the, the writer doesn't assume this is going to happen naturally because it's not. Why? Because naturally, all of us are tended to think about and focus on number one, and number one is so often who? Us. It's not natural for us to consider others, and it's an intentional thought that we have to, to say, okay, no, I'm I'm a new creation in Christ, and now it's not about me, it's about him, and being about him, it needs to be about his people. And so I'm going to consider with intentionality how to stir one another up to love and good works. This word stir up, I love it. It's to irritate positively. (laughs) So if you had siblings growing up, and you had that one that would just tap you on the shoulder and just keep poking you and keep poking you, and keep, or if you were in the car and you had that sibling and your parents were like, don't touch each other, and your sibling was like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, and they're just irritating you to anger and frustration, okay, opposite, irritate your brothers and sisters to love and good works. That's what he's writing here. That's what the word means. It's an irritation that, that causes you to act, but this is a positive irritation. You should be the type of person in your friends' lives that they know that you're going to encourage them towards godliness and holiness. They know when they see you coming, oh man, this is not just going to be a conversation about the weather. You need to be the type of person in your friends' lives that they know, man, when, when things get difficult, I can turn to this person because they're going to encourage me and they're going to point me to Jesus. And that involves this intentionality. Guys, think of all the one another's in the Bible. 
Just a few of them, right? Be at peace with one another, bear with one another, forgive each other, serve one another, count others more significant than yourselves, Philippians 2, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, love one another, be devoted to one another in love, right? These, all of these things, these one another's, they, they don't happen accidentally. No one accidentally stirs up another person. It's done with intentionality, right? Just like when you were trying to annoy your sibling or your friend, you didn't just accidentally do that. You thought, you know what? I know this is really going to bug them, so I'm going to do it. It's the same thing for us when it comes to being a positive influence in one another's lives. This doesn't happen accidentally. If you guys want to be the type of Christian God wants you to be and love the church the way that he wants you to love the church and be devoted to the church the way that he wants you to be devoted to the church, y'all, here it is. You've got to be intentional about thinking about how am I going to serve the church? How am I going to love the church? How am I going to be able to love my brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and you're to stir them up to, to love and good works. In other words, you need to care about the sanctification, the holiness, the godliness of your friends. You need to care about those things. I guess the question is, do you? And, and do you recognize that you need this as well? I don't care how long you've been a believer. I don't care how many times you won the Timothy Award. I think you can only win it once, but maybe you went for a victory lap and won it twice. I don't care how awesome that you are as a believer and how well you feel like you're doing. You need other Christians in your life to come alongside you and be the, the supports in your life, the struts, the buttresses, because you're going to need them from time to time to keep you going, to keep pressing on, to love you and to care about your holiness and to care about your love for the Lord. Who in your life is that person? And maybe if you say, you know what, I don't have that person. It's not the fault of the church. It's that you haven't given yourself to the church and been willing to be known by somebody else. Guys, I think that's one of the hardest things. To be vulnerable enough to, to let somebody truly know us and not just know the facade that we put on when we show up but to know our weaknesses, to know our doubts, to know our sins, to know our struggles, to know our fears, to know our anxieties, right? And I get that that's not going to be everybody in the room. That's going to be a very select group. Maybe even only one other person, two other people. Because you should have someone that knows you to that level. And you should know someone else to that level. Because that's how you're going to stir one another up to love and good works. That's how you're going to encourage one another to hold fast when the grip is slipping. When it gets difficult. We're to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Y'all, because the church needs you and you need the church, it, it follows then that you should make the church what? A priority. That the church should be a priority in your life. And hopefully this is a, a, a point that I don't have to prove very much. I mean, after all, if Acts 20, 28 is true, if Jesus shed his blood for the church, the church should be a priority for us, Yes? And being there, being present, showing up 
should be a priority for you. And I alluded to it earlier this morning as I was praying in our opening, but guys, the, the church is the only eternal institution that exists on this earth. The church's eternal marriage is not. When I die, my wife and I are going to be in heaven together, and I, I assume that we're going to be able to recognize each other in our glorified bodies. I'm going to be shockingly different than what I look like right now, so it may take her a moment to figure out what I look like, but I think we'll, we'll find each other. But we're not going to be husband and wife there, right? Jesus said that. In, in heaven, people neither are married nor are they given in marriage. So marriage is not an eternal institute. Your family, you may love your family to death and be like, well, we have Thursday night game nights and we have family time and family time and family time and family, family, family time and family, 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 family time and pizza nights. <laughs> Listen, dude, your family is not eternal. It's not. Here's, here's this, I'm going to make a statement to you that you may not like, but I'm just going to put it out there. The church is more important than your mom and dad. The church is more important than your brothers and sisters, biologically. It is, because here's the deal. If your mom and dad are part of the church, that's the most significant thing about their relationship to you. Because when you die and go to heaven, it's not going to be like you're living in a house with mom and dad. Mom and dad, when you die and go to heaven, they're going to be your brothers and sisters in the family of God in eternity. That's the significance. But here's the thing. If your mom and dad aren't followers of Jesus, or if your brothers and sisters aren't followers of Jesus, and if they die without bending and bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, and Lord willing, they won't, but if they were to, you're not going to spend eternity with them. And your relationship with them ends here forever. The church is the most important institution on the face of the planet. And not just as an amorphous concept. The local church is the most important institution on the face of the planet. And as you think about the time that you invest in different arenas, different relationships, different venues, the most important investment you can make is an investment in the local church. Third point this morning is this. There it is. Realize the church is the best investment. Realize the church is the best investment. Y'all, your devotion to Jesus will be realized in your dedication to his bride. Your devotion to Jesus will be realized in your dedication to his bride. If you are not dedicated to the bride of Christ, you can't tell me that you're dedicated to Christ. And again, that, that's not the universal amorphous I'm a part of the universal church. You know why people say that? So that they don't have to be held accountable. You know why people don't come to the local church? Because they don't want people to know them. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to be brought into the light. You know why people don't join a local church and come to the local church? Because it's hard. But Jesus never said it was going to be easy. Worth it? Yes. Valuable? Yes. Easy? No. Charles Spurgeon wrote about the church in one of his many sermons. In fact, he said it often, but there's a sermon that's called The Best Donation. Investment, donation, you guys get the connection there, right? 
the best donation. And in this sermon, Charles Spurgeon says this. It'll be up on the screens, the words here. If they're too small, I'm going to read them. And then if you are interested in this, I can get you the quote later. Spurgeon says this. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for I would, it would not have been perfect after I had become a member of it. Right, we can all say amen to that, yes? Well, he goes on. He says, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. I love that phrase about the church. Still as imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people. The church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. That's what we've been talking about from Hebrews. He ends here, and I don't have a slide for it, I'm sorry, but it says this, the church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It's the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is the dearest place. It's the best investment. It's the best donation. As soon as you've been given to Christ, give yourself to the bride of Christ. There is no better investment than to make an investment in the church. Guys, the church is a place where redeemed sinners meet with redeemed sinners to encourage each other towards undivided devotion to the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says, as you see the day drawing near, don't neglect meeting together. Because eventually Christ is going to come back and we need to be ready for that return. And we need, in the meantime, to be serving each other, helping each other, loving each other, devoted to one another, investing in each other as we await his return. Here's the thing, guys. If I can, step on some toes for a second. Coming to the bridge is great. But coming to the bridge is not the same thing as being a part of the local church. What we do on Sunday nights is not the church. It's an extension of the church. But it's not the church. Same thing if you would tell me, look, you know, I've got this on-campus ministry, I go to Crew, or I go to RUF, or I go to one of these on-campus Bible studies, and that's my church. It's not your church. Jesus didn't die for the bridge. Jesus didn't die for Crew. Jesus didn't die for RUF. Jesus didn't die for your college Bible study. Jesus died for the local church. So if you guys would say, hey, Compass Bible Church is my home church, but all you're doing is you're showing up on Sunday nights at the bridge, Guys, you're not committed to Compass Bible Church as your local church. 
You need to be there on Saturday nights, worshiping corporately with the bride of Christ, or Sunday mornings, worshiping corporately with the bride of Christ. You need to be serving the local church. There's not an age limit on that. You sitting here, if you are in Christ, you have been given a spiritual gift to be used for the common good of the body of Christ. You need to be using that. You need to be sitting next to people that are 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than you, worshiping and singing songs on Sunday mornings. You need to be listening to the preaching of the word from our senior pastor on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights as Pastor Mike unpacks the text for us and preaches to us. You need to be taking communion together with the body of Christ there at Compass, whether it's on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. You need to be there. You need to be part of the flock. You need to be part of the local church. Let me step on you further, and I'm willing to do it because Amanda and I, look, if you're wondering, do you guys just take a paycheck from the church and not give? No, we give to the church. As much as anyone else is called to give to the church, we are under that same obligation. And I'm here to tell you that we do. And what I'm here to tell you is you guys need to give to the church as well. If you're not giving, you're robbing God. And even if you sit there and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm out of work right now and I don't have any income coming in. Okay, how about the widow with her two mites? Look, give what you can give. Even if that looks like for a season you're going, I have a dollar to give to the church. Give it. Give it. But you guys, it's, it's time to realize now that it's, it's, it's time to be done riding on the coattails of mom and dad and their involvement in the church. It's time for you guys now to step into your full identity. You want to be adults in so many areas of your life and you want independence in so many areas of your life. How about now with, with the church? to step in, to lean in, to, to participate, to join in. Now listen, clearly I've, I've given my life to serve at, at Compass. I'm not planning on ever serving at, a, at another church aside from Compass Bible Church. Now, that may be in a church plant, Lord willing, in a couple of years, but it's still going to be Compass Bible Church. I am sold out for what we're doing, and I will argue to you, with you until I'm blue in the face that what we're doing is, is, is good and right and awesome and worth your being here. But I'm not going to argue with you that there are no, are no other options to, to go to church. I'm not going to argue that other churches are wrong or heretical or ungodly or unbiblical just because they're not a Compass Bible Church. Okay, hear me clearly on that, please, Okay. And I understand that there are differences in doctrine and in eschatology views that are second and third level issues on some of these areas, right? That may lead somebody to, to go to another church. I understand that. Look, if you want my opinion, come to Compass. When you look at the, 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 the feeding that you're getting from the pulpits week in and week out, I would say, just come here. But if you're in an extenuating circumstance where maybe your, your dad happens to be a pastor of another church, I'm not going to say, hey, dude, Leave your dad's church and come here. I do understand that there are extenuating circumstances. I'm not going to twist your arm on that. But I do understand that there are extenuating circumstances. But listen, here's, here's the thing. Let me, let me just say this. I can't draw a hard line and say it's, a, it's an absolute hard and fast rule that you attend Compass to come to the bridge. Okay? Let me reiterate that. I'm not going to tell you it's a hard and fast rule that you have to attend Compass to come to the bridge. I understand that there are other churches that their college ministries aren't either present or not meeting right now or whatever it may be, and, and you're here, great, that's fine. Here's the hard and fast rule. I want you to attend a, a local church. I want you to be plugged in and serving and engaged in a local church. I want you to be in a body of believers on a Sunday night or, or a Sunday morning or on a Saturday night and not just outsourcing your church involvement to the bridge. 
Look, I, I want all of you at the bridge and more. I love having you guys there. I love this ministry. I love each and every one of you. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, but I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that the bridge is the local church. They're not the same thing. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm done stepping on your toes, I think. Because, I mean, the church is so incredibly significant to us. It has to be. Christ died for it. It is, as Spurgeon called it, the dearest place on earth. And I think it's awesome that God didn't save us and then throw us out to be hermits. Good luck with this Christianity thing. Here's a book. Try to figure it out on your own, and you've got nobody. How awesome is it that he gave us one another, that he put us on this earth and gave us this team of believers to do life with, right? I mean, Simone Biles is phenomenal, but if you put Simone Biles and go, hey, go win the team gold for the United States by yourself. You, got, you have nobody else on your team. She may win a couple of events, but she's not going to win the team, right? She's not going to accomplish the, the overall goal of, of winning it for the team. She can't do that by herself, right? She needs her team. Well, guys, you, we need one another. And I think as Spurgeon says, the church is the dearest place on earth. It's, it's the place where you and I can take refuge from the distractions of the world, where we can be encouraged by brothers and sisters to hold fast, where we can encourage our other brothers and sisters also to hold fast. So as you think about undivided devotion to the Lord, yes, individually there's that, that focus that you need to have, but you also need to take your place on the line with the rope with the rest of us and pull in the same direction because we need you. And you need us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful, thankful for the church, thankful for the bride of Christ, thankful that you have designed it this way and placed us into a body of other believers and given us a team that will love us and support us and hold us up and pray for us and encourage us and positively irritate us onto love and good works and just care, Lord. I pray that we would care. Lord, I pray that if there are students that are sitting out here tonight or this morning, whatever time it is, I'm thinking to themselves, man, I, yeah, I need to be plugged in. I need to get connected, not just to the bridge, but also to the church. Lord, I pray that you would keep that, that conviction fresh in their hearts and don't let it go away as we drive back down to Orange County. Lord, put that... that conviction, that burden on their minds to say, no, I, I need to be there. I need to be a part of the, the, the big picture of the church, the local church, not just a part of one arm of the local church that's a, a, a subcongregational ministry. I need to worship with other believers, believers that are older than me, younger than me. I need to serve other believers and give of myself and give of the talents and the gifts that God, you have provided for me to serve them. I need to, to sit there and to take communion with other believers, to remember corporately together the sacrifice and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of my sins. I need to hear the word of God preached and exposited from the front week in and week out so that I can be fed and, and recharged. I need to, to spend time just getting to know other people that are also believers who are part of this church. We need to love the bride of Christ and Jesus, we are so grateful that you chose us to be the bride of Christ, to be your bride. 
and we can look around and see all the spots and all the wrinkles and all the ugliness that we see within this bride and yet to you you have taken us and you have washed us and you have sanctified us and you have made us clean and you look at us and we are beautiful to you and so Lord guard us from a critical mind and a critical spirit that would take shots at your bride Jesus we know that you're going to come back you're going to come back for your bride we want to be ready for that so give us as we've talked about Lord an undistracted devotion to you individually and also corporately Lord so that we can be found faithful when you return we pray in Jesus name